You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. Well, again, a very big welcome to you this morning. It's good to be here. We're going to um, open up God's Word together in just a moment and see what He might have to to say to us, it's fantastic having so many kids that it actually takes that transition time to get everybody out there and for parents to come back again, um, but it's great to, to have you here. I did have just uh, like one announcement, I think, just one announcement I had to, had to make. Yeah, we, um, did you enjoy a time of worship before? Uh, it's just, we are so blessed. Um, I don't know if that's, that's one of four bands, I think, is it Bruce? Do we have, uh, it's something like that here at Eltham Baptist Church. And um, um, the musicians are just so committed to bringing us their very best each week, which is fantastic. And you may notice that at times we've got new equipment on the stage. So for that reason, because I, I don't know what the investment is, but a lot of the equipment on the stage is personal equipment that belongs to the musicians as well. Um, and uh, so we're just going to have to to ask from from now on that after services and so forth, no kids up on the stage because of the um, investment there. That's uh, nothing. Fortunately, nothing has been broken. So this is the perfect time to make that announcement, isn't it? Um, so so kids afterwards, um, playground, trees, grass, everything is up for grabs. Just, just not the stage, just not the stage. Um, that'd be fantastic. We had a fantastic, speaking of worship, we had a fantastic worship night last night. The first time we've sort of done that. And uh, I don't know if, if you were able to come or not, but that was a very, very uh, special time of worship together. And it was great watching so many of our young people stand up. Um, it was excellent. I, I got to just sit back there, just, just like you do, as an observer and appreciate how blessed we are as a, as a community. Well, I got a call um, this week, or the office got a, got a call, um, from a uh, journalist with the Australian newspaper. And they wondered if they could speak to the senior pastor of Eltham Baptist Church just about, well, how, how are churches, how is your church in particular, um, engaging with the, uh, the plebiscite that's coming up, the, the postal vote, this whole issue of same-sex same marriage. And, and so uh, after a little bit of discussion as a staff and kind of thinking, why us, little Eltham Baptist Church? Um, uh, where, how, did, how did you zero in on us? Surely you want a cathedral somewhere in some major city. But for some reason, they had, um, they had found us and, and asked if I would do a quick interview. So I did that, um, and uh, so I guess I, I it, was a, it was a rather painless effort, actually. I had about a 15 to 20-minute conversation on the, on the phone with uh, Rebecca Urban, and, and, uh, and she told me a little bit about where she was going with the article and, and so forth, and, and uh, it, was a, it was a great discussion. And so, so yesterday's, uh, yesterday's uh, version of, oh, I've lost my, lost my clicking ability, Milton. Can you? Um, yeah, I, I've lost power. I'm disempowered. I don't know. Why. Here we, there we go. So there's there's the uh, uh, page page two of the Australian, and and oh, if you got out a magnifying glass somewhere and look closely at one of those those photos, you'd find. Actually, they said, would you would you do a photo with the article? And I said, you've obviously never met me before, have you? Because 
if you want to enhance your article, you wouldn't be asking that question. And she said, well, are you married? And I said, actually, yes, I am. A gorgeous wife. Now, that will help your article. <laughs> and, and so you'll notice I'm the only pastor up there who actually has, has their wife in the photo as, as well. And I think that was a good move. Um, and so this is, this is possibly my... My only time to be on page two, John Howard pipped me on page one, this is possibly my only time to be on page two of a, of a national, uh, national newspaper. And, and so uh, actually we weren't, we, we actually had a busy morning Saturday morning, so it was, I don't know, midday-ish when I finally uh, uh, got, a, got a copy of the paper myself to find out did I agree with what I said. And, um, and it kind of went from, you know, I thought over the phone, I had some fantastic things to say, but my, I guess my kind of mood went from, ha ha, you know, to ha ha, to ha. Um, it, it, there's, there's a little quote there, a little section um, where, where <laughs> you know, <clears throat> just a little bit there. And I sort of thought, oh, of all the different things that I felt I had to contribute, you know, um, that probably wasn't wasn't where I would have focused. And I was a little bit disappointed at first with the quote, but as I thought about it more, to be quite honest, I thought, well, you know what? It's actually not a bad, it's not a bad quote. Um, and, uh, and I'll tell you why. It, it, um, it touches on what I want to talk to you about this morning. And God's timing and the timing of God's word is an amazing thing. You couldn't rig it. But here's the little bit that, that uh, I was quoted as saying, at the Eltham Baptist Church in northeast Melbourne, that, that's here, that's us, um, senior pastor Stuart Hunt, kind of, oh well, has spoken to his congregation about the biblical, cultural, and historical perspectives of marriage. But he does not feel it is his role to tell people how they should vote. That's, that's true. When it comes to the church, the role of the pastor, this, this was my quote, is to shepherd God's flock. And I said, hey, this is not my flock. It's God's flock. This is not my church. It's God's church. And I don't have to tell people how to think, he says. Now, I don't know if this was a mis misquote or in the, in the discussion on the phone, I misspoke. But that's the only bit. I, I would change just that bit. I'd change just one word there because I don't entirely agree with how that's written. And I would change the how to what. It's not my job as, as a shepherd of God's flock. It's not my job to tell you what to think. Well, whose job is that? Well, that's God's job. And what you need to think is actually already written down. I, I don't have to tell you what to think. I don't make stuff up. It's, it's here in God's word. It's here in the Bible. However, I do think as a shepherd, it's my job to tell you how to think. Now, this is not complicated. I can actually do it just in a word, you know. How should you think? Biblically. Biblically. That's it. That's it. That, that was my job. That's a pretty easy job, isn't it? And you too could be a pastor. But, but a shepherd is God's flock. It's not, my job's not to tell you what to think. That's all here. But my job is to tell you how to think. And so I guess in, in one sense, I, I probably would take a little bit of exception of how that part of the conversation was, uh, was quoted. But that's okay. I think it was a reasonable article and there's nothing in there that um, uh, was, was too, too bad. I guess you, you feel a little bit vulnerable, don't you, when, when the media are representing you. But Rebecca did a, did a good job, I think. 
But I do think it is my job to tell you how to think and, and to think biblically. And, and, and now, actually, and here is the remarkable thing about God's Word and, and His ability to just time it perfectly so that the right thing is said at exactly the, the right time. Because as, as you know, we have been uh, working through a little bit of a, a series in the book of Joshua. And uh, we've been following Israel um, through a, through a, a, a kind of a, a, a different season in the life of the nation, where they are to inhabit a land that, that is, is not theirs, and yet God has promised it to them. Now, they had to be obedient to God's word. God would say this, and they had to be obedient to it, but they got that wrong. They were not obedient to God's word. They, they messed up. And we talked about lessons that we can, we can find in the book of Joshua about, all right, when you go astray, when you know that God says to do this, but you go and do that, when you find yourself distant from God, you have strayed from his purposes, how do you get back home? That's what we've been looking at. How do I get home? How can I be at home with God? That's the question. And so we looked at, we looked at four principles, and, and we've, been, we've been looking at those. Firstly, face the sin. Uh, it, Joshua was face down as the leader of Israel in the dirt, and he was saying, oh, no, what have we done? All is lost. And, and God says to Joshua, hey, get up, get up. Come on, let's face this together. So the first thing to get home with, to be with God is to face the sin. The second thing was to face the consequences. Realize that if you stay estranged from God, if you don't correct that situation, if you don't make your way home so that you can have intimacy with God once more, you will be weak and you will feel literally far away from the presence of God. They're the consequences. So face the sin, face the consequences, and then, and then deal with it. Deal with it. And the first thing that the nation of Israel had to do is deal with the sin. And they had to confess the sin. And, and we are told as well, when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just. He'll forgive you your sin and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. The beautiful thing about that verse, 1 John 1, 9, is that it's all about God's character, not your ability. You don't have to be able to be forgiven. You don't have to work hard at being a really, really forgivable person. Oh, here am I. I'm very forgivable, God. Don't worry about that. It's all about God's character. He's faithful. He's just. If you confess your sin, he'll do the right thing every single time. He will forgive you because that's who God is. And then you have to deal with the sinner. And we talked about the fact that Christians are the, the only people who actually attend their funeral a long time before they die. Paul put it this way. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we that lives but it's Jesus who lives with inside of us. In other words, when did Stuart Hunt, your lead pastor, die? He died a couple of thousand years ago with Christ. That was his death. And the funeral was back then. So we actually, we actually attend our funeral long before we actually die. So what is it that stands before you? It's a person who is filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ, Christ who lives within me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we, we looked at all of that and oh, I have to, sorry, that's a really quick review, isn't it? But, but we've only got a few moments to summarize that. But, but that's the steps, four key steps to coming home to be with God once more. And then we started to look at, well, what did the nation of Israel do after that? They had dealt with the sin. They dealt with the sinner. They'd come back to be at home with God. They celebrated. 
They had a feast, and last week we looked at that. We celebrated the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, communion together, and we talked about that fellowship feast that we can have today, which reminds us that we are two things. We are forgiven, and we are free. And then what did the nation of Israel do? How was it that they could experience something of life with God? Some writers have called it the victorious Christian life. This Christian life, which isn't just this strange set of beliefs and behaviors, but is actually a a real, authentic change of life, a transformation of the human being. How can we experience that? And and how can we uh, encounter all of those, those consequences? Well, the other thing that the nation of Israel did, and this brings us to where we want to go today, is that after celebrating the fact that they were now experiencing intimacy with God once more, the second thing they did is recommit themselves to the Word of God. Let me read to you from Joshua chapter 8. It's very interesting. Just a few verses here. But it tells us something about the heart of the nation. They didn't want to stray again. They didn't want to get lost again. They didn't want to go off track ever again. Well, well, having celebrated the fact that we got home... What else can we do? Recommit to the word of God. And that's exactly what they did. In chapter 8, in verse 32, we read there, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses. So you remember the law of Moses had already been handed down, written on stone tablets that was lost. Joshua writes a copy of it. And all the Israelites with their elders, officials, and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. This was a massive thing. I I wonder if you can picture it in your head. This is huge. Everybody, the whole nation of Israel, a couple of million people. And I imagine without speakers and, and so forth, that it must have been something like Joshua speaking this out. And then by way of almost mass, mass murmur, this same message being, being repeated out throughout the nation. Can you get the, the picture of how huge this was? So all of the elders, officials, and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. I mean, there's so many people here, they stand in front of a mountain. It's just a mass of people. As Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it was written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read. This would have been an epic, epic event. It would have been massive. It's going to make this morning look like just a blip. And, and I won't try to go on for as long as Joshua, Joshua did. But this would have been so epic. Uh, the New Living Translation has a beautiful little phrase. It says, Joshua read every word of every command. Every word of every command. There was nothing that he did not read. And he read it to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and the children and the foreigners who lived among them. It's quite a picture, isn't it? 
the entire nation is gathered together. And the big question mark was this. We strayed from God. We did what was wrong. We sinned as a nation. It's been traumatic. It's been difficult. It's been painful. It's been hard getting back to the place where we say we are now at home with God. What's to stop us doing it again? How can we ensure that we as a nation never muck up that bad ever again? They, they throw a feast and they celebrate with fellowship offerings and burnt offerings. The fact that, that they are now reunited with God. But the question is this. How can we never go astray like that ever again? And so Joshua reads the entire book of the law to the entire nation to say, this is God's word. This is his rule. This is what is good for you. This is life. This is life. You see, in verse 30, 33, we read, that these instructions are meant to bless the people. The word of God, everything that God has commanded, everything that God has given us, his word, his rules, his law, his commands, his statutes, they're all using different words for the same thing. But God's words to us equals his rule for us. This is my rule. This is... This is what my reign looks like. And that equals blessing for God's people. And that equals life. Let me read to you, just going back very, very briefly, as, as Moses parted, he knew that this was going to be an issue for the nation of Israel. And, and he talked to them, explaining the importance of listening to God's word. He says it this way, The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Um, oh, let me just flip through to, to chapter, chapter 30. Actually, we might even have a slide with this, do we? There's Joshua 8.33. Sorry. 30, verse 32 and uh, a verse, sorry, chapter 32 and verse 47. But on the way there, let me, let me share one more. I'm going to blank that out so you can't read this yet. <laughs> I know I'm nasty. But here's chapter 30, verse 19. This day, uh, Moses says, I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you a choice, life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. Now choose life. Now for this, this last verse, 32, 47. These, what I'm telling you today, these are not just idle words for you. They are your life. By them you will live long in the land that you are crossing. These are not just idle words for you. They are your life. That's what Moses said in, in parting. The word of God, it's not just an idle word. It's not a recommendation. It's not some... some ancient principle that we can be guided by. It's more than that. This represents the rule of God. It actually represents life and, and blessing as well. You know, when New Testament, when Jesus was being tempted, where did he go? What did he do when he was tested? He went to the word of God. He quoted the word of God. It is written. Uh, Peter 
when he speaks of the Word of God, he's trying to explain the process by which we actually get this book translated into English and and so many different languages for us today. Explaining the process, he says, it wasn't just men who came up with this, but it was men who were, now I love this terminology, carried along by God. That's a beautiful phrase to capture what inspiration, the inspiration of God is like. This was people, yes, just like you and I, absolutely. People who wrote it down, but inspired by God, they were carried along by God as they, as they wrote it. In 2 Peter 3.16, Peter equates Paul's writings with Scripture. In 2 Peter 1.21, he talks about that, that inspiration. And in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul himself, speaking of Scripture, he says, Do you not understand this? this? This Timothy, this is incredible. God's Word is like His breath. It's God-breathed. When we open this up, the Spirit of God uses it to speak to the very heart of who you are. Scripture is God-breathed. Um, I think sometimes you can think about Scripture a little bit like mathematics. Now, I don't know if you like mathematics or not. It wasn't one of my favorites, to be quite honest. Uh, who remembers? I don't know. Do, you, do, you, do they actually do long division in school today? No, you don't do? Yes? No? Yes? No? Yes? A little bit? Do you remember getting out the piece of paper and, and your teacher for the very, very first time trying to teach you long division? Now, I don't know. There were a few class geniuses who had it like that. I was one who, who struggled, partly because I was talking at the time. And if I wasn't talking, I was doodling or paying, I was staring out of the, the window. But eventually... My teacher nailed me just like everybody else, and I had to, had to do this. And the funny thing about long division is this. At first, you don't understand the theory of it, do you? You don't know why it works. You just do it, like, like, like kind of just a rote process. You go through it. Okay, I do this, step one. I do this, step two. I do this, step three. And do this, step four. And, huh, would you look at that? That's the right answer. And you do it again, and you, and you kind of, you get the wrong answer, but you work out what, what it was that you did wrong, and you tweak it a little bit, you get the right answer again. You know that it works. You're just not always entirely sure why it works. That's mathematics. There's a huge, you know, in the theory of mathematics, um, there, are, there are so many unanswered questions, and... And uh, I, I just Googled sort of un, un, uh, unanswered math problems, and I, I came across um, the Riemann hypotheses. In mathematics, the Riemann hypotheses is a conjecture that the Riemann zeta function has its zeros only at the negative, even integers and complex numbers. Let's skip that. The Riemann, here's the summary of it. The Riemann hypothesis implies results about the distribution of prime numbers. Along with suitable generalizations, some mathematicians consider it the most important unresolved problem in pure mathematics. Wow. Uh, you, you could read this. Um, I, I saw Stuart Gill somewhere here before. He's an astrophysicist. You probably actually understand what that's saying, don't you? You know, I, I don't. But if you can work it out... There is a prize for this, a million dollars, if you can work this out. Now, you're, you know, I know how you're going to spend your Sunday afternoon now, aren't you? 
But if you can work out this, it's a million, it's a million dollars. Now, you got the suggestion from church, and I suggest that you tithe. But the issue is, I'm, sorry, I'll just, just throw that throw in. But I'm, I'm thinking, this is the real point, I'm thinking there are these massive unresolved issues in mathematics. And it doesn't matter how simple or how complex we go, in mathematics, there are universal truths. You know it works. If, if I take one and I add another one, I will have two in any culture. Absolutely. It doesn't matter what culture I'm in. It doesn't matter what historical era I will stand in. One plus one has always, will always, always equals two. It's a universal principle. We understand that these things work. We don't always understand why they work. And can I suggest to you, God's word is a little bit like that. Here are universal truths for every culture, for every people, for every time. And church history shows us that when we actually put it into practice, it works every single time. People know that it works. They don't always know why it works. <laughs> Sometimes you will come across a tricky passage. You will come across a reading and you think, no, what is going on there? Trust it like mathematics, universal principle. It'll work. You may not understand why, but it will work. Put it into practice. I was um, in Greece, uh, as, as you know, back in July, and... And one of my highlights was um, a, a dinner after a session. A number, number of uh, uh, us pastors just, just went out for dinner. It was about 11 o'clock at night. And most of them were, you know, spoke Greek. I didn't speak Greek. And uh, so um, a, a friend of mine is listening in and, and telling me the conversation around the table and, and translating for me. And most of the conversation was in English. But, but two waiters came up to the table, an elderly man and a younger man, and they said to this group of pastors and evangelists, so we've got some questions for you. And I thought, oh, this meal is delicious, and now it's going to get really interesting. So I sat back listening to the translation of this conversation as these, these Greek waiters asked all of those complicated questions they could ask about things related to the Christian faith. The older man, I guess he was facing, he was a little cynical about life and everything, but he was generally at the end of himself and wanted answers. The younger guy was actually still full of himself. He hadn't got to the end of himself yet. That happens with life, doesn't it? But he was still pretty full of himself, I guess, and, and he had some great questions, and he wasn't finding the answers. And uh, my friend Tom was giving some you know, ancient proofs and apologetics for the validity of Scripture and the Bible and, and fulfillment of prophecy and a number of things like that. It was, it was, it was fascinating just listening to, to Tom engage. But the younger guy had some other questions on the side, and, and all of a sudden I felt this inner prompting, I should get in on the conversation, which was complex for a couple of reasons, one of which was I didn't speak Greek. So anyway, I ignored this feeling for a while, but kept getting this inner nudge. So eventually I lean over to, to Jonathan and I said, Jonathan, I, I, I wouldn't mind saying something to this young guy. Could you, could you translate for me? He says, sure. What do you want to say? 
And I said, I believe that I can give you two contemporary proofs for God. And so he translates that. And this young guy looks at me, this, this Australian who can't even speak Greek. What could he possibly know? And I, I mean, I'm over here thinking, I know, I know. I'm kind of feeling pretty, pretty small. Yeah, it's okay. But I feel prompted to, to tell you some things. So he says, okay, what are these two contemporary proofs? And so I, I give him the first one. I said, the first one is this, that I have tried and tested the word of God and I will go to my grave, seriously, believing that God exists. He has spoken to me and life is so good in relationship with God. And so that was translated and and uh, with a certain smugness, he just smiled at me and yes, all right, yeah, okay, go to your grave. And then, and then I said, and here's the second proof. And so he was waiting for this. And I said, read the Gospels for yourself. Read everything that Jesus ever taught. Put every single one of the things that Jesus taught into practice. The moment you find one thing, just one thing that Jesus taught, that when put into practice does not improve your life, as soon as you find that one thing, reject the whole lot because the whole thing falls like a house of cards in that moment. But I'll tell you this, for thousands of years, people have been doing that. And that one thing is yet to be found. Put it into practice. And so that was translated to the young man. And he re repeated back to me through translation. He said, I did that a couple of years ago. I read it all and it doesn't work. That just tickled my sense of humor so much. I just laughed at him. <laughs> and I said, seriously, how old are you? And he looked a little bit embarrassed. He said, well, 22 and I just laughed and I said, well, congratulations, because I'm 50 and I still haven't put into practice a quarter of what Jesus has taught. And uh, then my translator stepped in and he said, well, that's because you Australians are slow. Us Greeks are much faster. You know? <laughs> but that would be my challenge. The authenticity of God's word. Seriously, the contemporary evidence that I would give to you is put into practice everything that Jesus has ever taught, one principle at a time. You will find it is, it is filled with blessing. It is good for your life and you will find yourself falling in love with his words and his commands and eventually falling in love with him as well. So that was the purpose, as Joshua unpacks it. That's the purpose of God's word. It is to, to show you the way forward. It is to keep you from messing up your life and going astray. It is to lead to blessings for you. And it is to, to be equated with life itself. The word of God and life are intricately linked. But then there comes a response 
Okay, the Word of God is a valuable tool. It's a good thing. I should be reading it and listening to it. What is our response? And in verse 35, of course, we, we read before, afterward, Joshua read all of the words of the law. You see, the written Word, God's Word, the Bible, it tells us what to think. But reading the Word shapes how we think. So remember, my job as a, a shepherd of God's flock, as a pastor, is not to tell you what to think, it's in God's word, but to tell you how to think, biblically. Read this, read it, read it, open it up. The challenge is to me as it, as it is, to, is to you. Um, there's, there's no magic pastor dust that gets sprinkled on us once we become pastors so that, so that the entirety of God's word is just somehow embedded in us. Oh, I wish there was. Anyone finds that pastor dust, please, I will buy it off you. I will pay a premium. But no, I have to work hard at this just like everybody else. I have to open up this book every day. I have to read it. I have to look at it. I have to meditate on it. I have to ponder it. I have to confess. Sometimes I don't understand it. I have to trust it. I have to have faith in it. And I have to come back to that place where I say, well, now it's up for me to prove it to test it, to put it into practice, to go the next step and say, I'm not just going to be a hearer of God's word, but a, but a doer as well. And so reading God's word, absorbing it, digesting it, that's, that's the response. And, and which parts? I love, as I said before, the New Living Translation, every word of, of every, every command. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read. Every word of every command the, the New Living Translation has um, for us there. You know, there is a, an idiom we use in English, isn't there, to accept something as gospel. When we accept something as gospel, what, what do we mean by that? We are accepting it as gospel truth, as, as God's truth, as, as infallible, inerrant that it has to be accurate entirely. That's a great idiom. And I would like to apply that idiom to accept something as gospel to, well, the gospel. I would say to you, a good rule of thumb is to accept the gospel as gospel. There, there, there we go. I probably don't have to say much more, do I? This is God's word. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. In Joshua chapter 8, verses 8 and, and 31, we, we read that, that uh, Joshua commanded them to put this into practice constantly. Um, and, and there we have a few, a few verses about Scripture. It's God-breathed. This is God's Word to us. So here's a couple of cautions regarding Scripture. Scripture itself, Revelation chapter, chapter 22 it's always interesting, isn't it, in, in any book to at least read the first words and the last words. The very, very last words of Scripture are actually a warning and a caution. And in verse, verse 18, we read this, the very last words of the Bible before the book of Concordance. But the book of Concordance, I don't testify, is infallible. That, that, that's, that's up for, for grabs. But Revelation 22, verse 18 is a caution. I warn anyone who hears the words of prophecy in this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in the scroll. If anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person their share in the tree of life. In other words, with Scripture, here is the caution. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Here, you are finding the perfect balance for approaching the Word of God. 
It's the two L's. Um, to, to take away from Scripture is the, that's, that's the, uh, the, the liberal um, challenge. To add to Scripture, that's the legalist challenge, the two L's. We will always find ourselves being drawn either to liberal thinking and to take away from the Word of God or legalism and to add to the Word of God. You could say it this way, the, to, to take away from the Word of God, the Sadducees were famous for that. To add to the Word of God, the Pharisees were famous for that. Don't be a Sadducee, don't be a Pharisee. Be a follower of Jesus Christ who is firmly standing on the Word of God. We're going to be careful in our application. It's why I, I really always think about you know, what to say, but what not to say, because I don't want to add to God's Word. I don't want to somehow lead you into some false legalism. You know, you've got to do it all this way. I'm not going to tell you what to think, just how to think. But nor can I, you know, every now and again, there are some passages in Scripture and they make you uncomfortable. They make me uncomfortable. Sometimes people will come to me and say, oh, I, I'm not really comfortable with this part of Scripture. You know, and I kind of feel like, well, to take away from that would be, that would be the, you know, the, the, the that would be the liberal dilemma. I would be, I would be, you know, guilty of all of a sudden becoming a judge over God's word. The, the, one, the very, very best things that was ever said to me at seminary college was, was this. You've come here to master God's word, but you need to let God's word actually master you. Thomas Aquinas was one of the fathers of the, of the church, lived centuries ago. He had a little saying, which in Latin was hominum unius libri timio. I fear the man of a single book. In its negative sense, in contemporary language, I fear the man of a single book has, has come to mean I fear the person who only reads one book because that person will be an ignoramus. That's how it's kind of been come to be understood. But that's actually not how Thomas Aquinas, if it was him who said this, meant it. He actually meant it as a challenge. If a man could be devoted to just one book, if he could put just one book into practice, that man would be formidable. I would fear that man. That's what he was saying. John Wesley picked up on this as well. And, and he, had, um, he actually wrote... I don't know if you know much about the ministry of John Wesley, but, but he would train up pastors. If you think about the Wesleyan Methodist Church, you know, many of these, these ministers would actually, on horseback, you know, they'd go out to all sorts of country churches. And the Methodist movement was pretty phenomenal, actually. And John Wesley, of course, was the founder of that. And he, uh, he actually wrote a book um, to help all of these ministers on horseback riding out to these rural areas to help them put their sermons together. And in his introduction uh, to, um, to the preface to sermons, this is what he writes. This is how he understood the Word of God. He said, To candid, reasonable men, I'm not afraid to lay open what have been the inmost thoughts of my heart. So here he is, old language. He's basically saying, I'm going to be frank with you. Um, he says this, I am a creature of, this is long before Shakespeare ever said, we walk on the stage and then we, you know, we have our moment and then we walk off the stage. Long before that, far more poetic, John Wesley. 
I'm a creature of the day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. That's even more fleeting, isn't it, than walking on the stage and off again. I am a spirit come from God and returning to God, just hovering over the great gulf to a few moments hence, I am no more seen. I drop into an unchangeable eternity and I just want to know one thing. What is it that John Wesley wants to know? It's what we all want to know. It's what every one of us should ask. I just want to know one thing, he says, the way to heaven. How to, how to get home, how to get home. He says, how to land safe on that happy shore. I think he'd be referring to Revelation 12 there. God himself has condescended to teach me the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. So here is John Wesley saying, I'm like an arrow just shooting through the air, just I'm here, I'm gone. It's just like that. That's my life. And in that moment, in that short life of shooting through the air like an arrow, I just need to know one thing. How do I get to heaven? How can I be at home with God? That's all I need to know. That's all I want to know. And God has condescended, Wesley says. God's, God's shown me the way. He's written it down in a book. And so for Wesley, here was the value of the book. He says, for this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, don't be scared. I'm going to raise my voice now. Okay, <laughs> just want you to be at peace. But I'll say it with emphasis. Oh, give me that book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God, he says. And then he says, I have it. I have it. Here it is. And this is his practice. And this is what he's instructing all of those, the little preachers <laughs> under his leadership. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo, uh, homo unius libri. Here, a man of one book. Here then am I, far from the busy ways of men. I sit down alone. Only God is here. In his presence, I open it. I read his book for this end, to find the way to heaven. That's what was going to keep Israel on the straight and narrow. That's what will keep you on the straight and narrow as well. I remember somebody once asked Baptists, we're a funny lot, aren't we? We're known for kind of our excess use of water. You know, when we baptize, we really dip. You know, we get serious. Baptists. What, what's the main distinctive of Baptists? And somebody once said, well, freedom of conscience, isn't it? Well, no, not really. It's important. It's amongst them. But the Bible never applauds the fact that we have, you know, or glorifies our free will per se. There's more, more important things. Uh, Jim Gibson, a lecturer I had in Queensland on one occasion, put it this way. Asking the class, all right, well, what do you think is the most key distinctive of Baptists there is? And being a good, a good classroom of good students, you know, one hand after the other went up, well, the, the word of God. And Jim shook his head, nah. So somebody else said, scripture in its entirety, nah, no, 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 no. 
The decrees of God. No, 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 no. The teaching of God. No, 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 no. Our handling of Scripture. No, 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 no. Our evangelical commitment to Scripture. No, 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 no. It was all word-based. And so finally, in one of those exhausted moments where the class knows we're not going to get it. And so we all look blankly at Jim. What is it? And he said the most unexpected thing. He said the Holy Spirit. And that just stumped us because all of a sudden we thought we were in a Pentecostal college. <laughs> thought, really? I mean, we liked it. I, I like that. I like that. The Holy Spirit's God after all. He's, he's good. But then confused, somebody said, seriously, Jim? This is a Baptist college. It's got to be the Word of God, surely. Father, Son, and Scripture. You know, there's, there's, we've all been raised that way. And he said, without the Spirit of God, how are you going to interpret this book? So Baptists, yes, as, as evangelicals everywhere, yes, we love the Word of God. But even more, we have this unquenchable confidence in the Spirit of God to interpret the Word of God so that we can be the people of God. Let me leave with you one last verse, and I'll close on this. And that's a real start. I really will close on this. It's not one of those preachers closing. John chapter 16, verse 12. Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will guide you into all truth. R.T. Kendall said, and I know, have you ever heard these words before? By the Spirit, through the Word. I usually say them each week. It's a, kind of as a test question. We've all failed. By the Spirit, through the Word. What a beautiful way to summarize it. By the Spirit. It's the Spirit's empowering. It's the Spirit who helps us to understand this book. By the Spirit, through the Word. That's the recipe for the Christian life. That will keep you from straying. That will keep you from finding yourself at a distance from God. That will give you the blessed life. That will lead you to the life that is truly life. Jesus says, I have much more to say to you. Do you, do you want to hear Jesus speak to you about a, a particular topic? Do you sometimes finish the Gospels or finish your reading and you kind of think to yourself, oh, but Jesus, I have so many unanswered questions. That's okay. Jesus says it here. That's all right. I've got so much more I want to say to you. So if you've ever thought that, you know, having come to the end of your reading, you kind of thought like, oh, but I, there's so much more I want to know. Perfect. Because there's so much more Jesus wants to tell you. And to that end... He has given you his spirit. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. When we take time to spend in God's presence, sitting at his feet, opening up his word, we can be confident that the spirit of God will lead us into all truth. It's there for us. It's there for us. And that, folks, means life. It means life. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I want to, want to thank you so much for your word. We've just been talking about it. it. 
that it is equated with life itself. Here is the way. Here is the way. You've given us the instruction we need to keep us from straying from you. Thank you so much for that. There's been a lot to take in this morning, and I just ask for one thing. In the quiet, would you just give everyone here, everyone here, one thought to take away with them today? By your spirit, through the word. Lord, I thank you that we can trust you to speak to us. And for those of us who got that one thing, that one thing that we're going to take away from this today, help us to put it into practice. To not just be hearers of your word, but doers as well. Thank you, Lord. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.com.au.